Welcome to the weekly message from Upper Room Community Church in Vaughan. We hope that this message will help you grow in your faith and provide practical ways to strengthen your relationships. For more information, visit us at upperroom.ca. Well, welcome. Welcome to Upper Room Community Church. My name is VJ. I have the privilege of uh, being on staff here. And um, I'm, I'm joined right now by, uh, by my dad, who was uh, up here last uh, week, and uh, Pastor Tony. And uh, we're in a, in a series that we're calling For the Sake of the World. Uh, one of the things that, as, as I um, began to understand God's heart for me and for the world, and as we begin to read in Scripture, we realize that the thread that runs through the entire um, story of Scripture is that we worship a God who has a mission. And his mission, oh, sorry, junior highs, you guys can head out. You already know. It's <coughs> the rest of you are like, why are people starting to leave? It happens from time to time. That God is on a mission, and the great news is that the mission God is on is the mission we would want him to be on, <laughs> which is to mend, repair our broken world, and to make all things new. And that we see in Scripture that no matter how far short we fall of the people we were intended to be, no matter how broken this world seems and, and, and dark in some places, and maybe even as you come in this morning, you're facing things in your personal life or you're just um, maybe feeling down about the things that you read going on in the world around us, that no matter how dark the darkness is, that it cannot overcome the light, and that God sent his son into the world as part of his mission to make all things new, to save us, to redeem us, to bring us home, and that God's heart is always the heart of one who sends and doesn't just send like sending orders from on high, that he sent himself, he sent his son into our world. And therefore, as people who belong to God, that that heart of God to see the world made new is meant to be the heart that we have mm. as well. Mm. And that we ourselves actually just, in one, as I said to you um, a few months ago, one of the most stunning verses in scripture is when Jesus says to his disciples, this little band of people who was at that time a marginal movement, you know, 12 of them. He said, hey, as the father has sent me into the world, so I send you. Mm. And that he sends us with the same power and the same mission and the same desire to see people know and love Jesus and to see them come home um, to, to be made new. So we're doing um, a series right now to just say, well, what does that actually look like? Because when we talk about this, the mission of God, even the word missions in many ways has, brings up sort of baggage for some people or sort of um, historical issues or for some, we're just like, well, it's, it's kind of a weird word, like, is, how does that really connect with me and my everyday life and us as the church? And so we wanted to take a few weeks to do that. And one of the things I thought that I wanted to do today with my dad being here is he's someone who has shaped so much of my own understanding of God's missional heart um, and has been a part of leading a church for 30-something years in that direction. And so, um, and at the same time, I know just in talking with many of you in my own journey with this, there's lots of questions that come up. So we've done something before called a Hot Seat Sunday, where we just sort of take questions about stuff. So today's a Hot Seat Sunday, um, but we're taking questions and we're dealing with questions as it relates to kind of missions or God's heart for the sake of the world. So there's, uh, Pastor Tony's number is up there on the screen. So as we're talking, we have a couple of questions um, that we've heard before that we're just going to kind of start with. But as you're listening, or maybe you come in today, and you have questions, just start texting them in. Don't wait till the end because we'll just take them as they come. Um, but my hope and prayer is that, um, you know, even if you think, well, this is kind of a dumb question, or I'm probably the only one who's, who's wanting to know it, that's probably not true. Um, and Pastor Tony can filter out dumb questions, so don't worry about that. So just, just send them in. Um, and, I will uh, use your name. Yeah, yeah, that's right. You can send whatever emojis you like as you send the questions in, but we'll be listening, and he'll just be kind of feeding those in as we go. But just to launch us, I thought, um, you know, a lot, a lot of times, and, and I have friends who will say, well, you, you, Vijay, you're a Christian because you were raised in a Christian home. And, and I'm a Buddhist because I was raised in a Buddhist home, and that's how that works, and that's how we ended up where we ended up. And, that's, and certainly the home that you were raised in, the culture you grew up in, maybe even part of the world that you grew up in, certainly had a huge role to play in your belief system. Um, but I think it's always interesting to realize, well, our beliefs aren't a product or just a product of the culture of the skin or the skin color or the part of the world that we grew up in. They're actually just the way that we see the world. And in that sense, it's possible for our worldview to change. And so um, 
Dad, you didn't grow up, obviously, in a, in a Christian home. You grew up in a Hindu Brahmin family in North India. Just even just to start, maybe a, a short version of how you came to follow Jesus. Well, it was actually through the ministry of Youth for Christ in New Delhi, in India. And uh, until that time, about the age of 16 or so, uh, it's a fairly typical home that I grew up in. Religion at one and the same time is everywhere and nowhere. It's everywhere in the sense that uh, the mythologies that shape Hindu beliefs and stuff like that, they are woven into the warp and woof of movies. And it would be like every movie in Hollywood had featured Jesus and Jerusalem and Judaism and all, all of that, that kind of stuff. At the same time, there is absolutely no connection between your faith life and your everyday life. Uh, we went to the temple on holy days, uh, but your belief in God was compartmentalized. It didn't affect the way you did your work, did your business, did your marriage, did your ministry, did your people, anything like that. So it's everywhere and nowhere at the same time. Very much compartmentalized. And I grew up in a very moral kind of a home. We were taught all the, 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 the nice things. You know, you need to be truthful, you need to be kind, treat people well. India is a country with lots of poor people, so we had lots of servants. I always say in India you could have five servants and can't afford a car. Here you can have five cars, you certainly couldn't afford a servant. You know? And so we were taught to treat people well in a culture that treated servants poorly. So it was a very moral, wholesome upbringing. I had a dad who just modeled authenticity for me as he worked for the government of India. Um, home was a very stable home. Uh, you heard a lot about that under the influence series, emotionally healthy spirituality. Even though I grew up in a non-Christian home, I had a gift of emotional stability in the home. My childhood was a happy childhood. Uh, I loved studying, you know, odd that that may seem for young people. I just love to study. Uh, I've always wanted to be an engineer. I was rationally oriented towards life. So just life was happy, you know. But as I got to my teenage years, I began to struggle a little bit with you know, does God really exist or not? Is he a figment of our imagination? Did we create God to fill in the gaps that we would otherwise not be able to explain? Or does God really exist? And I can't remember exactly the details of that stage in my life, but these were not the kind of stuff you talk to your parents about. When I said religion is everywhere but nowhere, it's the warp and woof of society, but you don't really talk about it. There's no such thing as a personal God. And in Hinduism, there isn't even a congregation. You go to the temple on high days and holy days, but you kind of go by yourself. Various people go there and come back. There's no such thing like a congregation as such or a community. <clears throat> Around about that time, uh, many of you know my brother-in-law, Ravi Zacharias, and his dad and my dad both worked for the government of India. We grew up in the same government housing area, and so he and I have been friends from the time we were five years old. He came from a nominal Anglican family. I was from a nominal Hindu family. And his sisters, one of whom is my wife right now, were involved in a, in a Christian school and they had to go to a Christian club. And through that, they got connected. They were called to sing at a Youth for Christ rally. My, Ravi and I heard there was lots of good food to eat at these rallies, so we showed up at the next one, discovered to our absolute chagrin that was only happening once a year at the beginning rally in September. And we had a whole year to wait to eat good food. But in the meantime, <laughs> we got connected to the Youth for Christ director. And there I happened to start going to a, 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 a Monday night club while in my first year of university. Uh, was the club was called Tammy Teens and Twenties, the most important. There I heard the gospel for the first time. And I'd always grown up knowing something about Christianity because India is a land of many religions. Uh, and I knew all the stories, you know, the, you know, the Joseph and his coat of many colors, Daniel and the lions, then Moses and the parting of the Red Sea. These kind of stories were taught to us, you know, because it was a religious home. And religion is good in India, no matter what religion. Uh, but I didn't know anything about Jesus as a person. And that's what I began to discover for the first time, that Christianity as a religion was no different than any other religion in India and had absolutely no interest for me. But Jesus as a person became completely fascinating. That's how the journey started. Um, I guess how, what, what was the difference for you between the religion, or even you said the Christian, yeah. Christian religion and Jesus, and what kind of launched that yeah, it, it's as I began to read. So when I heard it for the first time, I took home a Bible and started reading the Bible, especially in the New Testament. I just began to discover that what Jesus taught was all about a relationship with him, that he, he wasn't some, a dead God whose teachings we still have, as opposed to a living God whom I can actually relate to right now. And like all other relationships, although I understand things a lot more now than I did then, I probably wouldn't have been able to explain it to you in these words then. But just like we are transformed largely by the relational matrix of our life, 
this relationship was the most transformative relationship was going to be. And so that was the single biggest thing. That was the first thing. And then the other thing I remember, so the whole issue of the resurrection, that this is a, a living God and a relationship with a living God as opposed to trying to follow rules that some great teacher left 1,000 years ago or 500 years ago. That was a big change. And then the second big change was that music came into my life. I mean, I loved, I loved uh, music, but I didn't have a voice. I couldn't sing. And I never tried singing. It wasn't, I was interested. It really, in, engineering was my interest. But as I began to sing the Christian songs of faith, something happened inside of me. Uh, there was a different kind of harmony that was coming up from within. I was walking around singing, and my mother was wondering, what are these songs that you're singing, you know? And uh, I can't explain it. And from that day, I loved to sing, you know, even though I still don't sing. Uh, for anybody else, I'd love to sing in the crowd. And that was the other big thing. There was a harmony, you know? Music has the power to integrate Again, I couldn't explain all these things at that time. Engineers don't have imagination, you know. I discovered much later we actually do. They were just dead. And so we just enlivened them once again. So music began to have that integrating effect within my life, and an imagination was being sanctified. And then the third thing, I think, was the fact that the understanding of sin was completely turned upside down. Until then, my understanding of sin was like every religion, including the Christian religion. Sin is the th bad things you do, you know. So do this, don't do that, don't touch this, don't look at that. A little black book of rules and regulations that you tried to avoid. And I discovered that that's not what Jesus talked about sin. Sin was actually who we are. It's that state of separation from life. We are dead in our sins and trespasses. We're separated from our, the author of life. That's sin. It's a state of separation. And the individual things in our life that mess us up so much flow out of a state of deadness. I think those were perhaps the most dra drastic things. And so that uh, I, I, I say even now to people of my background that I talk to, including my brother who lives in Singapore, I didn't leave Hinduism to become a Christian. I left all religion to turn to a relationship with the living God. Interesting. Uh, yesterday, a bunch of the guys were together for a men's breakfast, and we were watching one of the videos. And, and he was talking about um, that the pattern of the life we live now is in relationship with someone who is a life-giving spirit, right. which is kind of weird language. Yeah. But even when we were singing about it this morning, is this idea that, like you said, that actually in Jesus we are we are brought to life. Right even though we're, we're the walking dead, in a sense that we're alive, but not, there's something in us that yeah. longs for more. And it's that idea that we've been brought to life. Yeah. So that's how it got started. And it, just a cool piece of that story, it was a Canadian yeah. guy who you know, was... I'm a pro you talk about missions. I'm a product of missions. Uh, I heard the gospel in the home of a Canadian missionary named John Tave. He still lives in Calgary. He's 88 years old. He did my wedding. He did my father-in-law's funeral as well. He's been a huge part of our life. It's an amazing story how he even ended up in India. Uh, he was in Canada and felt a call to go to China, couldn't go, was, not, was diagnosed with severe uh, pneumonia, some problems in his lungs. He had his uh, elders pray for him, even though it was a Baptist church, and they prayed, <laughs> they believed, and those, you know, didn't believe those kind of things, and he was healed. But by that time, the door to China had closed. And God put a burden on his heart to go to India. And he tried desperately in various places to share this vision, wouldn't get permission anywhere else, until finally at the Youth for Christ Winona Lake Conference in Winona Lake, Indiana, he was given five minutes to share. He got up and shared and nobody responded. The next day a lady came to him and said, she said, my husband just died. Uh, he's left me with five children. I have a $2,000 legacy that he left. He, she said, I know how to work. I can look after my children. Here's the money. You go to India. And as a result of that, he came. And I don't think she ever has, whether she ever knows Ravi or me or what happened to us because of that gift. You know? And yet it was because of someone giving, sending someone, coming from here to, my, to our country, proclaiming the gospel. It was in his home that I heard the gospel. So I'm very much a, a product of missions as, in that sense. And so, uh, you know, it's just a natural thing that God has made that a passion in my life as well. I think what's, what's always struck me about your story when you talk <laughs> about it is... Um, the difference between Jesus and religion. And, you know, sometimes we can think, oh, that's sort of very, that's nuanced or that's semantics or whatever. But I think in your story, very much was that was, um, I remember the first time you told it to me, just this idea that you were expecting to hear something about the Christian religion and you were confronted with the person of Jesus. Right. I think I always come back to that when I'm trying to sort through, you know, we live in a very pluralistic culture and society and all kinds of religions. Um, 
And I think even just how we understand our own faith journey is not about subscribing to a certain kind of religion, but actually following in the path of Jesus. And it may seem only a nuanced difference until you actually go to these places and talk to the people and watch their religions function. Or just like you might watch a nominal Christianity function in somebody's life here. Yeah. It's just dead, absolutely dead. There's, there's ritual, there's burden, there's... There's just a mechanic, ritualistic repetition. That's not a judgment of the people's hearts. There may be real longing within their hearts, but the actual functioning of it is not life-giving at all. In fact, you know, and the Bible says that we become like whatever we worship. And that's what happens. Deadness just slowly begins to pervade every part of life, you know, even while having a semblance of life. And Jesus reverses that completely for us. You know? I think the other thing that it affects so much is if we believe and understand that Jesus has come to give us life to the full, then he's constantly finding places in my life that are dead yeah. or dark. You know, like it, it never ends. Like it's this constant journey as opposed to, well, just give me the, the plan. What's the plan? Where's the place I go? What's the words I say? And, and that's it. So, that's yeah. Tony, are you getting texts? Oh, I'm getting texts. Yes. <laughs> well, let's start with this one. Um, yeah, I think this is a good question to start off with because, Senator, you mentioned it. Like, you yourself are a product, a product mm -hmm. of mission. Mm -hmm. And I think for some, especially those that, uh, you know, aren't part of the church or would mm -hmm. be a, a spiritual skeptic or whatever, mm -hmm. that immediately would raise some tension for them right. to say, like, this whole idea of someone from Canada, mm -hmm. from a Christian perspective and worldview, going into another country, mm -hmm. um, obviously with a, a very different worldview, a very different uh, religious kind of c context and cultural context to say, that I, I'm actually going with the intent to convince people out of that religious worldview into my own. So, you know, here's the question in that sense, like, and this is certainly kind of the, uh, one of the, the great kind of, you know, tensions or, or pieces in our own kind of cultural worldview that, that is, is prevalent. So, um, you know, like, isn't that narrow and offensive to suggest that Jesus is Savior, King, and Lord of everyone, of okay. the whole world? Yeah, okay, first of all, it is narrow, there's no question about that, but... <laughs> What we don't realize is that everybody's narrow. That's the point. Uh, unless someone makes a meaningless statement like, I believe this, but I don't think it's true, which would be a meaningless statement to make. You think of it for a minute. Let's, some, let's take an atheist, someone who has an atheistic perspective on life. And if I were to have an imaginary conversation with them, or they came to me and they said, Look, you know, you're really narrow to believe that Jesus is the only way. I'd say, okay, what do you believe? Well, I don't believe there's any God. Oh, right, okay, so you don't believe there's any God. So, but you believe it's true, right? You believe that it's true that there is no God. Uh, yeah, I'm assuming he'd say that. And therefore, I don't believe there's any God. Okay, in other words, if you don't believe there's any God and it's true, then everybody who believes in God must be wrong because he doesn't exist, right? Yeah, well, then aren't you really narrow-minded? Because really, yours, way, yours is the only right way. Because if you're right that there is no God, everybody who believes in God must be wrong. So aren't you just as narrow-minded as I am? And you can use that logic to any statement and any, any worldview that a person has so long as they actually say they believe it. If they believe it, even the person who says, oh, all religions teach the same thing. My response to that person would be, okay, so you really believe that all religions teach the same thing. So therefore, it's true that all religions say, teach the same thing. Therefore, everybody who doesn't believe that all religions teach the same thing is wrong, right? Yeah, therefore, you're narrow-minded with your view. The fact is, we are all narrow-minded because... Whatever we believe, its opposite is not true. The question then becomes who has the right to be narrow-minded? Which narrow-minded viewpoint makes the most sense? So you could shift the discussion to that point. That's the first thing I would say. Now, offensiveness is a different matter altogether because <clears throat> there is the offensiveness of content and the offensiveness of manner. Uh, we cannot afford to be offensive in our manners, insulting, downgrading, looking down upon people, deriding them, all that kind of stuff. But an offense of content is inevitable, specifically the offense of the cross that the Bible talks about. Because the very essence of the call of the Christian faith is to surrender, is to surrender to Jesus, to surrender to the lordship of someone else, to say, I am no longer boss in my own life. I'm dead. I'm, I have no capacity apart from the power that comes from within. Well, that, that kind of humbling is an incredible offense to human pride. 
and that you cannot avoid. So I think it's important to make a difference between the offensiveness of content and the offensiveness of manner. But as far as narrow-mindedness is concerned, anybody who believes something and they believe it's true is automatically narrow-minded because it excludes everything that's opposed to that. Some, that's some of the ways I would start. And as far as going from here to there, all I would say to them, they do it in every other area of life. We go from here to there to teach people medicine. Isn't it arrogant of you to go there and tell them that their medical practices are all sin? No, 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 it's good for them. Yeah, that's the point, right? As soon as you believe something is good for somebody, you're willing to go and correct something that they're doing wrong that is not good for them. Well, apply that same principle to the soul. I may be wrong in my belief, but so long as I truly believe that what I want to share with them is for their good, it's no different than what they do. You know? So again, you shift the conversation back to, let's take a look at whether it's true or not. I think one of the other things that's important in that is saying, <coughs> well, what is it that we're going to other places to do? I remember talking to um, Lizette, who spoke here a couple of weeks ago, and she um, went to Guinea, West Africa, 20 four or five years ago. Um, and a friend of hers who was here at the time when she was leaving saying, Lizette, like, I don't, I don't like what you're doing. You're going to go and you're going to go destroy their culture. And Lizette said, well, only some of it, you know. <laughs> and, and her son was like, well, what are you saying? And she's like, well, well, you know, like they believe in female genital mutilation. It's part of the culture. So do I want to go and destroy that? Yes, I do. Um, they think it's okay for a man to have multiple wives and still sleep around with other people and for children to be, um, you know, if they're not old enough or they're not the right sex, to be discarded or treated as slaves in the household. Do I want to go and change that? Yes, I do. So I think some, we have this idea that um, every other culture, all of their beliefs are all good and helpful to everyone. And in fact, that's just simply not true. We know there's all kinds of worldviews and cultural beliefs that aren't helpful at all. And so to adopt an approach that says live and let live is actually not loving at all. Um, any of them, if you look at many of the relief organizations that have operated around in the world, many of them have been motivated by Christian sort of values and, and Christian um, beliefs that says God actually cares about the body and God cares about our relationship. God cares about marriages and households. God cares about the way cultures interact. And we can see it just all the way through um, Scripture. And so to say, okay, if I hold that belief so dearly, I'm not going to be just so selfish to say live and live because there's all kinds of things that are happening around the world that are not a function of, it's, it, you know, because on the one hand, we can't say, well, oh, they're just not educated enough. So basically, everybody else is stupid, and we are educated, and all they need is to be educated. It's like, no, there, there are many wise and intelligent people all over the world, but there are also deeply held cultural beliefs that are not helpful to relationships and to communities thriving. And there are other dimensions of the culture that are actually helpful. Right. And so Jesus came both to redeem culture and to enhance culture. And as you look in the pictures of heaven that are in many dimensions, especially in the latter parts of Isaiah, when it talks about the wealth of the nations will be coming in, that's not just in the sense of the wealth of the nations coming and will pay tribute to their new boss. <laughs> the wealth of the nations is God's riches manifested in so many different cultures will come to their full fruition in Jesus. And so there will be much to learn from other cultures. I mean, in many of the other cultures where they value time, they don't have as much money, but they, allow, they have valued time and they value relationships. So there is a humility that it is called for. So yes, we change some dimensions of culture and we go to learn from other dimensions of culture as well. That we're both made in the image of God and we are marred people. We are made people, we are marred people, and we are being remade people. While that is true individually, it is also true of culture. You know? This might be a good time to take a quick look at that quote that I have in there. Sure. Uh, this, I just came across this, actually a, an atheist uh, who on his three travels to Malawi talks about uh, what he saw there. He says... Uh, this was, let me give you the background. It was written by a self-confessed atheist, Matthew Paris. Paris was born in Nyasa land, now Malawi. He returned after 45 years and came to a conclusion which by his own admission confounded his own atheism. Remember, this is an atheist writing. It confounds my ideological beliefs, stubbornly refuses to fit my worldview, and has embarrassed my growing belief that there is no God. I've become convinced of the enormous contribution that Christian evangelism makes in Africa sharply distinct from the work of secular NGOs, 
government projects, and international aid efforts. These alone will not do. Education and training alone will not do. In Africa, Christianity changes people's hearts. It brings a spiritual transformation. The rebirth is real. The change is good. We had friends who were missionaries, and as a child, I stayed often with them. I also stayed alone with my little brother in a traditional rural African village. In the city, we had working for us Africans who had converted and were strong believers. The Christians were always different. Far from having cowed or confined its converts, their faith appeared to have liberated and relaxed them. There was a liveliness, a curiosity, an engagement with the world, a directness in their dealings with others that seemed to be missing in traditional African life. They stood tall. At 24, traveling by land across the continent reinforced this impression. Wherever we entered a territory worked by missionaries, we had to acknowledge that something changed in the faces of the people we passed and spoke to. Something in their eyes, the way they approached you directly, man to man, without looking down or away. They had not become more deferential towards strangers, in some way less so, but more open. This time in Malawi it was the same. I met no missionaries, but instead I noticed that a handful of the most impressive African members of the pump aid team, largely from Zimbabwe, were privately strong Christians. It would suit me to believe that their honesty, diligence, and optimism in their work was unconnected with personal faith. Their work was secular, but surely affected by what they were. What they were was in turn influenced by a conception of man's place in the universe that Christianity had taught. This is an atheist acknowledging the cultural transform transforming power and the making of people more alive. So it's good to remember that. That's good. Okay, this is a related question. Um, uh, and so as I read it, I think maybe the lens that, that I kind of read this through is, I mean, in a large part anyways, and I think in some ways you've answered this, but I think it would be helpful in terms of this particular language. Like what you've both been talking about is in terms of bringing the gospel into uh, another, like other countries mm. um, with different cultural uh, contexts and worldviews. What about in terms of our own culture? Like, how do, we, how do we wrestle with this or speak into this when one of the primary values of our own culture is one of tolerance and diversity? Okay. And so how do, we, how do we bring this same message into, into a culture where that particular value is almost, you know, at the top of the list? Um, well, yeah. I think it goes back again to the issue of what do we, the difference between truth and tolerance. Uh, Mortimer Adler probably has written best on this particular stuff. But... Uh, if I were to say to you, this jacket is gray, I'm dealing with a truth statement. If I were to say to you, I prefer gray jackets, that's a preference statement. You have to tolerate my preference. You may think this is an ugly color for a jacket, but if I say I prefer this style, you have to tolerate that. You can't say it's right or wrong. But as soon as I say this jacket is dark green or bright yellow, and you know it's gray, you don't tolerate that. Now you've shifted from preference to a truth statement. And what happens is we are supposed to tolerate preferences and be intolerant of truth in the sense that something and its opposite both can't be true at the same time. We are living in a culture that has mixed up the completely the opposite. We are intolerant of people, and we tolerate all kinds of uh, contradictions within truth. And so I would say, in a case where people raise that question about tolerance, I would just gently talk to them about, from their, first of all, from within their own experience, uh, that they actually are quite intolerant of anything that is opposed to what they believe. So I think that's the fundamental distinction. It's a confusion of what we tolerate and what we are not supposed to tolerate. We are completely supposed to tolerate people, ideas, preferences, but you do not tolerate uh, truth and its opposite and pretend they're both the same. That's the starting point anyway. I think one of the reasons that we're talking about that is <coughs> we, it's such a complex society that we live in and we don't really know what to do with the conflict that we have. Um, even as we observe some of the racial tensions, you know, sort of that were happening in the United States. I remember hearing one of the black pastors just saying, like, you know, the fact that we have certain people who are black, who are leaders and whatever, doesn't mean we've moved past racism in America. These things are indications that there's still deep-seated problems. And I think, of course, we have them in our, you have them in your own family, in your own world. You have them in the cities where we live. And 
when we don't know what to do, everything gets brought down to sort of the irreducible minimum. And I feel like tolerance is one of those words that's kind of like an irreducible minimum. It's like, okay, yes, we should absolutely be tolerant of each other. In other words, gracious, understanding, accommodating, to live in peace and harmony regardless of what another person believes, regardless of what they look like, regardless of their skin color. Yes, all of that. But it's too low of a bar to fix the world. Like, tolerance is just not enough. So yes, it's important to be that way, but to realize, wait a second, if we don't actually start to say the problems in the world are something I'm meant to do something about, like, in fact, I'm not supposed to tolerate injustice. So if we, so I think about that because I see that on the school, on the board by my kid's school, right? And I'm always like, that's so lame. It's so not enough. Yes, of course, I want my children to be tolerant, but I want them to be world changers. I want them to make dents in the things that we have been wrestling with for years. And if we think about whether it was Martin Luther King or William Wilberforce so many years before, um, Mother Teresa or um, Rosa Parks, right? Perfect example of someone who said, I'm not going to tolerate giving up my seat or moving to the back just because another person has a different skin color than I. We, anything we celebrate in history of people who stood up and did something, he says, I'm not doing this anymore. And I think where the whole manner is, is so important is saying, we don't do this as people who are, are going to you know, bomb a clinic or be violent in our approach. We follow the way of Jesus, who was who was peaceful in his approach and yet completely intolerant of the things that were killing the people that he had come to save. And that, that's the key thing you need to remember. Os Guinness had taught me something many, many years ago that was so valuable uh, in, on, in communicating across cultures, whether over there or over here. He said there are four basic uh, steps you go through. Uh, first is identification. In other words, you understand where they're coming from. The second one, which we most often miss, is called stimulation. And that is defined as opening up an alternative perspective from within their worldview. The goal of stimulation is to get them to the point where they say, wow, I never thought of it that way before. Then translation, which is my message in their language. And finally, justification, how do I know it's true? In uh, identification, where they're at. In other words, if someone calls you and say, hey, how do I get to your place? What's the first question you ask them? Well, exactly. You can't give them directions to go to A unless you know where they're at. So you can't lead people anywhere unless you know where they are. So identify first, and then stimulation, and it's still through questions. You identify through questions, you have to stimulate through questions. And when it comes to the issue of tolerance, for example, always get to them, not forget about defending yourself. Say, okay, is there anything in your life that you're not tolerant about? Everybody's, there's something they don't tolerate. And then you can start from there. Say, okay, well now that's interesting. Why are you intolerant of that? Why are you able, what distinguishes then between what things you should tolerate and shouldn't tolerate? And you move the question then to truth issues. It, when you dialogue that way, and Jesus was a master at that, you remember when he, after he had cleansed the temple, the chief priests and the Pharisees came to him and said, by what authority do you do these things? Now he could easily have said, oh, I'm the Lord of the temple. On other occasions he did say that, one greater than the temple is here. But you know what he said? He said, hey, guys, you want to know what authority I did this by? Remember John the Baptist? Uh, what was was this authority from heaven or not? You know what happened to them? They went into a huddle right away. And they said, what are we going to do? If we say yes, we're in trouble. If we say no, we're in trouble. We never thought of it that way before. Oh, Jesus, I'm sorry. We can't answer that question. He said, okay, bye-bye. <laughs> the whole point was he got them to say, I never thought of it that way before. Same thing. You want to pay taxes to Caesar? They thought they were going to trap him. If he said yes, he's going to be out of fashion with his own people. If he says no, Roman soldiers were waiting around there. Instead, how did he answer? He said, give me a coin. Uh, whose image is on that coin? Oh, Jesus. Okay, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, give to God what God. I didn't think of it that way before. Jesus did that all the time. And I think that's the whole point. Get them to the point where they have to say, I never thought of it that way before. Then they might ask you, what do you have to say? Then it's translation, my message in their language. That's been very helpful. I think one of the most important parts of the question asking is also, you know, are we living lives that beg questions? Yeah. Like, if our lives basically look like everybody else's, no, right. except that we go to church on Sunday, mm. no one's going to ask us. Nobody does ask you questions about church on Sunday. Yeah. They're not interested because they think they know what it is anyway. It is when our lives begin take, become taken over by the mission of God and his heart, and we begin to do things 
not, you know, as superheroes, but we, we begin to sacrifice our time, our energy, our money, our lives. We begin to give ourselves away. That is radically different than the world around us. And then when someone says, why do you live like this? Right. Right, then that is a question that is genuinely, rather than trying to have people engage in a conversation they don't even want to have. And, and I think in many ways, the, you know, it was Rick Warren, one of the pastors uh, who's planted a church many years ago, said like, you know, the church is supposed to be a body, but we're basically like no arms, no legs, never doing anything. We're just a mouth that speaks about what we're against. <laughs> you know, and he said, of course, no one's interested in that. It is when the church recaptures its mission in the world. And when you and I do that in our own neighborhoods and influences that people say, why do you live like that? Whether it's the way we deal with worry or being terminated or losing out on a promotion or giving money away or how we treat the refugee crisis, how we talk about things like that, how we talk about the political conversations, all of that stuff either falls into a stereotype that they go, yep, knew what you were about. Or wait a second, there's something else going on here. I think it was Joe Aldrich who said this. He said, people are not interested in what you don't do that they do. They're interested in what you can do that they can't. And then he says about two things, transform relationships and attitude to money. That'll wake them up. Okay, we're going to switch gears a bit. Man, we're running out of time already. This is crazy. Um, there were lots of questions coming in, though, when you guys were talking about all this. So I, I think if you want to follow up with these guys afterward, I think <coughs> I don't want to speak for you, but I'm just about to. So I'm saying you guys will be available <laughs> after the service to carry on. Uh, another question came in that related to something you were saying early on, uh, Pastor Sundar, when you were just talking about how your understanding of sin, mm. how that was radically changed mm. in your own sort of process of mm. coming to Jesus. Mm. So can you unpack that a little bit more? Like how important is that? Like it, both in terms of our own understanding of yeah. what sin is, mm. It's a small word, but as I grow my yeah. own faith, it becomes a bigger and bigger thing. And so mm -hmm. the work of Jesus actually becomes a bigger and bigger thing. Mm -hmm. But then not only in terms of your own understanding, how you communicate it in a way that actually makes sense. This is a word that it's lost in our culture. It's an archaic word. The right. concept mm -hmm. is no longer mm -hmm. even really valid right. anymore. So how yeah. do we even speak about well, that? Well, I think there you probably heard, Vijay, I mean, I've heard him say that here. So you've heard that many times. But Tim Keller is perhaps the most helpful person. He says, sin is not so much doing bad things as much as taking good things and putting them in the place of God. And that every one of us has <sighs> idols in our heart, things that we are looking for, that for, the, for our deepest satisfaction. And the way he talks about it, I think, is extremely helpful, which is to basically help people see that the things that they're looking for to satisfy the deepest longings of their heart isn't actually delivering and is not able to from within their worldview. That's back to that identification stimulation process and then how Jesus is the one who can meet that. So that when we see sin at its core, again, not as things that we do, but the fact that we're looking to the wrong thing, that anything other than God. Luther, for example, has a whole treatise on how every commandment is really a breaking of the first commandment. And I was listening to a series of lectures by Keller recently. He talks about how both he and his wife to have a tendency to tell white lies, but they tell it for very different reasons. Uh, for example, he said, uh, I lie because I don't like to uh, get people upset. So someone will say to me, hey, have you read that book that we gave you? He'll say, yeah, I'm just about to kind of read it. And his wife will say to him, Tim, you weren't really planning to read that book at all, so why did you lie? He said, I lie because I want to keep people happy. Because that, so the real idol inside is I've got to keep people happy. He said, my wife doesn't care two bits about what people think of her. He said, she lies for completely different reasons. One time on the phone, someone wanted her to come someplace. She said, oh, I'm kind of busy that night. He said, I said, Kathy, you aren't busy that night. He said, she loves her independence. And that's the real idol within her heart. So we both lie. We both break the commandment, thou shalt not lie. But the root reason we break it is because we are both treasuring something else that we think, in this case, if I keep people happy with me, that'll make for me. For her, if I preserve my independence, that's going to keep me. Both of us have to solve the problem of lying in exactly the same way. Jesus at the center that will enable her to give away her time and for me to actually be able to confront people and get them upset with me. So I think that whole way of talking about sin, very, very helpful in our culture. I think, too, seeing that the Bible doesn't, is much more complex in its addressing of the concept through heart idols, through this systemic brokenness yeah. you talk, the condition. Like, I think to realize we, in many ways, as the church, have oversimplified it as this, hey, you have a problem, it's called sin, and you do bad things, and you steal paperclips and stuff, and oh, Jesus, right? Instead, it's this kind of transactional thing, instead of saying, wait a second, like, what is wrong with me? Yeah, and Dallas Willard, in his book, uh, this, the... Divine Conspiracy, which is on the Sermon on the Mount, has got a brilliant chapter called The Gospel of Sin Management. 
how the evangelical right does it in terms of private sin, the liberal left does it in terms of social sins. But both people see the gospel as a gospel of sin management as opposed to the change of the heart. You know. Well worth reading just for that one chapter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, I'm just going to read this. This is good. 80% of the world's people groups that are easier to reach uh, have workers that have, that have shared or are sharing the gospel there already. The 20% of the hard-to-reach people groups do not. What does the Bible tell us about people groups that, uh, that never hear the gospel in their lifetime or have never heard about Jesus at all? Okay, that's a very important question. There are several levels that we... Uh, and, but the first thing I'd like to say at the very beginning is that there's a difference between problems and mystery. Uh, problems have to be solved. Mysteries, you look for clues. And it's a way of looking at life that has become really helpful for me. Uh, Peter Kraft, in his book, Making Sense Out of Suffering, addresses the whole problem of human suffering in that way. And whether to me it's an issue of hell or the people who have never heard is very helpful. So here, this isn't a, a, a question that I can answer in a neat little bow, but here are some clues that help me at least grapple with it enough that I can live in the face of the question. Living, living the questions is probably the far bigger challenge as opposed to finding answers. So these are the clues that help me live that. The motivation behind the question what about those people who have never heard is a desire for justice. That's the whole point, right? Deep down within is, does, will God be just? And the broad overarching answer to that is, where did we get our sense of justice from? We got any sense of justice we have is a highly watered down, weak version of a blazing, infinite justice of God. And so if you think you and I are passionate about justice in this area, you can rest assured about one thing. He will deal with the issue unbelievably justly. So that when we're up there and we see him dealing, whatever that is with people who've never heard, neither you nor I will have any question of justice issues. So that's one level to keep that in mind. So your justice is, is only a weak version of God's justice and he will deal justly, number one. Number two, uh, this whole issue of, uh, is predicated on the assumption of that if people were given second, third, and fourth chances, they would do things differently. I would encourage you to read a small 80-page book called The Great Divorce by C.S. Lewis. Probably the greatest flight of human imagination that I've ever read. It's a story of a busload of spirits from hell who get to go to heaven. And every one of them has a chance to stay behind. None of them stays. It is an unbelievable expose of the, of the illusion of this thing called the second chance. That's the clue that helps me. Thirdly, there are clues in scripture from the mouth of Jesus himself about people who've never heard. What that means, I don't know. But the fact that he will, he will take it into account is very clear. Like in one place he was talking to a particular group. He said, look, uh, woe unto you, Chorazin and Bethsaida. If the miracles that I did here had been done in X, they would have repented. Therefore, I tell you, it will go better for them on judgment day than for you. That's a very important statement from Jesus. He says, I do, will there is a way of taking into account. I don't know what that looks like, but if justice is what we want, he will take it into account. That's the first thing. And then another story, he said that about a, a servant who knows his master's business and doesn't do it will be beaten with many stripes. A servant who didn't know his master's business and didn't do it will be beaten with fewer stripes. Both beaten, but stripes different. What does that mean? I don't know. But the clues are all there. So these three or four clues have kind of helped me from the biggest overarching issue of justice issues to the, issue, to the myth of the second chance, and then thirdly to the fact that Jesus himself said, I'll take things into account. That's as much I'm going to do. So that's how much the Bible says, I think. And that gives me enough to say I can now uh, um, ask Guinness in a book called uh, Dealing with Doubt. Uh, has a brilliant chapter at the end called The Theology of Suspended Judgment. And, and the one-line summary of that chapter is, I don't know why, but I know the God who knows why, and I have very good reason to trust him. I think, too, on that one, it's interesting in Romans 1, it says that the universe itself actually has clues that point us to God. Um, that even creation itself is something that points. I mean, the truth is, and, and yet it says that we have an inclination as human beings to suppress the knowledge of God. So there's something in us that wants to pretend that God is not there or isn't actually 
wanting to be involved in our lives. Like, I think part of what we have to realize, that's human nature. And if you say, well, that's no, people really want to genuinely know truth. It's like, well, every one of us actually has this thing that we'd rather just live independently rather than believe there's a God there who created us, who has a will for our lives. And I think one of the ways to see that is we, the whole ex scientific exploration uh, from Darwin was influenced actually philosophically more than scientifically, saying like, well, what if we looked at science assuming there is no God? Well, if you start an exploration assuming something is out of the question, you're going to land somewhere else. And I think to say, we would never accept the explanation for the sound of a popped balloon that just went off. And if you said to me, what was that noise? And I said to you, nothing. And you said, what caused it? And I said, nothing. You would never accept my explanation for a popped balloon, yet we have accepted that for the entire universe. So I think we have a truth suppression problem. We don't really want to know. And so I think to say, yes, we believe that God will be just, but that also saying there's something inside of every one of us is that I don't really want that to be true. Yeah. And so the question of, you know, how, how do I deal with that, I think, is, and I always say to people, because people will say, well, what about an African tribe that has never heard a remote? Or what about a, a child who died? And I'll say, you know what, God will be just, but you're not an African tribe nor a two-year-old. Yeah. So what are you going to yeah. do? You have the scriptures in every language you possibly want. It can be read to you, sung to you, whatever you like. Like, what are you going to do with God's revelation in Jesus? Because that's the question you have to wrestle with and leave the rest to God. Yeah, I forgot that. And then C.S. Lewis adds one more thing. And by the way, your sudden newly found interest in African tribes, go overseas and tell them about Jesus. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's good. I think that'll even lend itself to this next question, too. I think this is a good question to end on. Um, but I think uh, there's a trend that we can see in the history of the church. Um, uh, particularly when it comes to kind of the church's missional impulse. Mm. And oftentimes in history, we've sort of seen when the church is actually going through times of, uh, of suffering, mm. of challenge, of discomfort, of unease, of persecution, the missional impulse seems to increase, not decrease. Yeah. And when the church goes through times of great comfort, affluence, ease, the mission, when you'd think we have all the resources and more resources for the missional impulse to increase, it actually decreases. So we, we recognize that we're in, we're in that space of affluence, of comfort, of ease in our own kind of cultural context. So what do you say to the church um, in terms of our own missional impulse? Like, how do we cultivate that? Oh, boy. Yeah. Um, Another book that I'm reading right now by Oz Guinness is called Impossible People. We're taking some of our mentoring couples through that. That's exactly what he talks about, the, the incredible danger of modernity and uh, especially materialism in North America and, and what that has done. He basically, I'm only halfway through the book, he helps us to recognize the spiritual dimension of this warfare. And we sang about the Holy Spirit, that we really need a fresh, reviving work of the Spirit within our lives. And so, uh, in addition to last week, I talked about the whole issue of intercessory prayer as far as advancing the penetration of the gospel is concerned. That needs to go hand in hand with prayers for revival, for the Holy Spirit of God to come and revive us as well. Because really, nothing less than a reviving work of the Holy Spirit. And reading that book, Impossible People, at the stage in life that I'm in right now, I have six grandchildren that are the burden of my heart. And the world they're going to grow up in is going to be much, much more difficult. Uh, I've always prayed that way for my ch children when they were growing up, knowing that they'll be growing up in a more difficult world. Those grandchildren are going to have an even more difficult world. And so they're going to need even more of an anointing of the Spirit. And just yesterday, talking to one of our international workers in Istanbul, she was telling me about her 14-year-old son and how he had come to her one day a few days ago and said, Mom, five or six of my, my friends... Uh, grade eight. He said, we want to study the Bible together. Can you come and lead us? And so she said, we met with them about four times. And then last week, she said, I really felt, tell them, you need to open this up, not just to your friends. Open it up your whole class to see who will come. Nineteen of these kids showed up. And she said, my son came back and said, and mom, we, we had this wonderful time of worship where one of their peers led them in these kind of songs where they were praying for the fire to be lit within them. And then he said to her, and I led the Bible study. So what did we do? Oh, we just read Mark's gospel. Oh, Galatians 5. He said, we read Galatians 5 and we all laid hands on each other and we prayed for the Holy Spirit of God to come down upon us. 14-year-old kids with no adult in there at all. I said, God, do that again, please, over and over and over again in the lives of our children and our grandchildren. You know, so that's the answer. 
Well, could you, um, could you just pray for us? Um, <coughs> two things. One, that that would happen. Yeah. <laughs> um, and maybe there are some of you here that actually feel like God has a call in your life that you may actually move somewhere, like mm. some kind of geographic relocation, you're mm. open to that. Mm. And I just want to say, if that's you, like, don't suppress that. Um, <coughs> just tell somebody, <laughs> which may be the scariest thing you do, but maybe you could just pray for that. And secondly, that there are some of you here that might be on that spiritual journey uh, where you have not, you know, you've been sorting through religion and you're really longing for life and you want to find Jesus or, or, or whatever it is um, that you could just pray for people that, you know, even might have been in your shoes as a 16 or 17 year old. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you so much. We sit here and we're just amazed. You know, I wonder what you think of your little children here answering profound questions, thinking we're so wise to have all the answers. <laughs> you must be smiling upon us. This is our best attempts, and you just take that and then you absorb it into your own massive grace and power, and you work miracles in people's lives through that. We are absolutely humbled that we can be instruments, and we are chosen by you, by grace. Grateful, Father, for that. And so whether through the word that we've spoken or through the words of a song that were sung earlier on, or that will be sung now, or maybe through circumstances in their own lives, Lord, I just pray for each of these two groups of people, for if it's even one person today, that something is happening even now within them as the Spirit is applying a flame all the pieces have been in place, the intellectual pieces, the emotional pieces, the, um, the pieces of volition, all, all together and just waiting for the match to be lit. And just like music came alive within my heart and began to put things together again, Father. You do that work. Do that work of regeneration. Holy Spirit of God, you come upon them, giver of life. You just say, live. Live. Just say one word, live. And we pray that life will spring up within Father. And uh, death will be swallowed up in victory. And there will be an awakening, a stirring, new hopes, new dreams, new desires, new inclinations that will surprise them even by the end of this day. And we look forward to hearing them share that with others. Uh, and Lord, I pray for maybe one or two or three, especially someone younger here, who says, this is a news worthwhile taking. This is the kind of transforming agent I want to become. Give me the hill country. Caleb prayed that way. So perhaps there's somebody here whom you are finely tuning and equipping, Father, with through personality, through gifts, through character, through temperament, to possess the hill country. And I pray that this may be the day of liberation, a day of setting, taking the next step forward. That spirit leading them into those waters where feet may fail, but faith will rise because you are with them. And then, Lord, for this church, as I pray for Rexdale, for Upper Room, for, for uh, Connections. God, just pour out your Spirit upon us. Descend upon us, we pray. As the Word is preached, as the sacraments are practiced, as people gather together in small groups, as they share, as they give, as they engage with the poor in Guinea, as they are on this adventure of, of reaching beyond through financial sacrifices, somewhere in this whole mix, Father, I pray that ignition point will come, that you will rend the heavens, and you will come down, and you will make your name known amongst us when you do awesome things that we did not expect. In Jesus' name, Father.